Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Michael Clune is professor of humanities at Case Western Reserve University. He's the author of many things, including American Literature and the Free Market and A Defense of Judgment, and also a book entitled White Out from several years ago, but is, the, the, that book is actually coming out again uh, this year with a new foreword by the author. A related statement uh, to that book appeared in April in the Washington Post that, that crossed my eye, an opinion piece entitled, Why Decriminalizing Drugs is a Bad Idea, which gets us today's topic. Welcome, Professor Clune. Thank you. Glad to be here. First of all, just tell us uh, what, the book White Out. What was that? What was it about? Yeah, so it's a um, it's a book that originally appeared ten years ago, and they uh, uh, just uh, published the ten year anniversary edition um, in March. Uh, and essentially, it's a memoir about my own experience with uh, addiction and recovery, um, uh, addiction to heroin. And uh, basically, in writing it, I was uh, motivated by what I felt was an absence in a lot of the literature on addiction which didn't really speak to um, the dynamics which led me, um, you know, which, which I, I felt to be the heart of addiction, which was um, the, uh, <clears throat> you know, addiction is a disease that it's, a lot of people think it's, uh, the problem is that it's hard to kick the drug that you go through withdrawal. But really the issue is that the question is, why do we keep on picking up the drug after we've put it down, after we've gone through jails or have various kinds of consequences? What is it that uh, leads us again and again to that addictive object, and how do we find recovery from it? So that, those are the questions that I addressed in that book. And when, when it came out, uh, it, it must have struck a nerve. We have a 10-year anniversary uh, version of the book. In the new foreword to it, which, which, I, which I have read, you speak of going to— you, you begin with that foreword with, with a, a striking um, uh, episode that really through, through anecdote, through narrative, tries to explain some things about what you just described. You speak there of going to the dentist for some rather vigorous uh, surgery, <laughs> which posed a special problem for you. I think it's a problem that people, most people, even who may know about addiction, don't, don't quite realize what a danger this is. What was, what, what was the episode? What was the problem there? So the issue was, um, you know, I'd been clean for almost 20 years, or about 18 years at that point, and um, I had a very difficult molar extraction, and so the dentist prescribed me uh, Percocet, which is an, uh, an opiate painkiller. And um, 
and I, I said, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna need uh, uh, to take this. I'm in recovery. I don't want, I don't want it. And the, and the dentist said, oh, you're gonna need it. You know, just, just take the prescription. Um, and sure enough, when the Novocaine wore off, I experienced unbelievable, excruciating pain. And uh, and so I, I put in place a protocol that we have in recovery, which I gave the bottle to my wife. She gave it to me only as needed. Well, let, um, let me let me uh, let me interrupt you for for a moment, yeah. Professor Clune, because. The foreword appeared in, in the Paris Review, and I, I want to um, let, let me read a few sentences out of this so our, our readers get an idea, first of all, of, of your talent as a writer. Uh, you, you talk about being at the dentist, and you say, I, uh, uh, when I got to the dental surgeon's office, I told him that I'm a recovering addict and that I wanted to avoid opiate painkillers. He looked in my mouth, and when he got out, he said, you're going to need opiate painkillers. <laughs> Then he shot me up with Novocaine, and he went in there with a wrench. And I realized that dentists have soft, delicate hands and seem like doctors, like intellectuals. But when you really need dental care, you go to a dental surgeon, and their main qualification is brute physical strength. This guy had white hair and arms the size of my legs, and he put the pliers on me and wrenched and wrenched and wrenched. And despite the Novocaine, the pain was like a hundred Hitlers gnawing on my nerves gnawing them right down to the roots, and then just sinking Nazi teeth up to the hilt in my brain. There was blood everywhere. I was making horrible sounds out of my throat, and the dental surgeon was saying, just hold on for one more second, saying it through gritted teeth, and I was writhing in my chair with tears pouring out of my eyes. Just want, Professor, just wanted to give people a little picture about the actual experience. I don't want to shortchange your your writing on on this. So forgive me interrupting. Uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah. So so yeah. That that's the, the protocol. Uh, uh, the protocol. Right. Right. So so um, my wife takes the the pills away from me, hides them, gives them to me only as needed. Um, I stop using them while I'm still in pain. These are the, the practices we, we, we have in, in recovery. And yet when I took that first pill, it was like all the time in recovery vanished. And hmm. I had that sensation. I describe it in the piece as if there was a, an old scabbed over eye in my brain that slowly opened when I took the pill. And mm -hmm. all that I ever did was look for and desire more of the drug. And it was a very uncanny and sort of destabilizing experience, as you can imagine. Um, and it led me to reflect. And thankfully, you know, uh, uh, because I've, I've got a solid recovery, because I go to you know, meetings and because uh, my wife is extremely supportive, I got through it. I'm still clean. Um, but it did let me realize that, you know, one of the many dimensions of, of, of uh, addiction is that it's this pain, you know, pain medication paradox. On the one hand, the pain I, I experienced was excruciating. You don't want people to have to go through that with no relief. On the mm. other hand, using those, the only painkillers that we have that really work, and after you know centuries of trying, there still is only opiate-based or opiate-derived painkillers that, really, uh, uh, that really work. Um, and that leads to a risk of, uh, of an addict you know, going into a relapse if they don't have a, a really robust recovery. And I just use that as, as a, an example of the kind of problem that addiction represents. It's a kind of problem that Americans really have a hard time getting their head around because there's yeah. no easy solution, right? Um, on the one hand, it might be easy to say as well, people, yeah, sorry, go on. Well, let, let me, you know, what you were just saying about the pain, yeah. right? The pain and acknowledging 
the paint. You say in, in your piece that you use of actually very specific term, and I, I'm, I think you mean this quite, quite concretely, that pain is dehumanizing. Yes. What, what, what do you mean by that? What does pain do to a human being? Well, pain, you know, the, the, the kind of pain that I experienced with that, and it, was, it ended up being infected and all kinds of problems with that tooth extraction, it was like all of a sudden I was reduced to my sense of the future and the past vanished and collapsed into just a kind of present of unceasing agony. Hmm. And if as human beings we're often defined by our sense of time, our expectation of the future, our memory of the past, um, that vanishes under extreme pain. You can only think about relief. You can own your only experience is of intense pain. And um, that sense of being trapped in the present, you can't say to yourself, oh, this is going to end soon because you just can't get there. You can't get out of this agonizing present. Um, you know, I couldn't walk. I mean, you know, I was, I was, I was clutching my mouth, like, like hunched over. I mean, it was, it was, it was really, uh, uh, you know, I, I do think dehumanizing, um, in a strong sense, you know, the, the, the loss of the capacity to think, to plan and so forth. And the parallel is to, or, or the complement to is what the, what the opiate does to the pain. Yes, yes, yeah, that it, would, yeah. It stops. Wonderful. How can we tell people, no, no, you can't do that? Yeah, exactly. What do we do? I, I mean, I mean, th th this is one of the, this is one of the reasons why you say we often, we often handle, handle addiction in, in the wrong way. Let me mention another experience that's related to that inner eye that you refer to, the, the whiteness. You, you, you mean there that the whiteness, and I presume that that relates back to the title of your book. Yeah. What is the whiteness thing? So for me, uh, a, a really key to, uh, to addiction, which, which people hadn't really explored in, in, in great depth before, is the key to addiction isn't necessarily what the drug does to you when you take it. The key to addiction is what I see when I see the drug, what I think of when I think of the drug. And I use the word white because when I was in Baltimore doing heroin, when I was in graduate school in the early 2000s, um, the heroin they sold were, was in uh, little white, uh, little uh, uh, glass bottles with white stoppers. And so I associated that color hmm. uh, uh, with the drug. And one thing I say in the book is that, and I can use the parallel of cigarettes, which more, more people probably have an example of. I haven't smoked now in 20 years, but if you were to put a pack of cigarettes on the desk, my eyes would, would gravitate towards it and it would shine with a perceptual intensity which other objects don't have. It would, it would act like a magnet to my attention, a magnet. Mm. And, and the other thing about it is, is that whenever I see, as an addict, the drug of choice, it's as if I'm seeing it for the first time. It's, it's as if I'm back at the first time I ever tried it and all the euphoric sensations associated with that first time are present again. And what vanishes is all the negative experiences I had with the drug, all the efforts to quit it, all the times hmm. where it made me sick, all the overdoses. That vanishes. All that I'm aware of is this intense perceptual uh, object which, which shines with a kind of promise of happiness. And, and the only thing that really, really can stop it is, is I mean, pra practically, is 
this, as you put it, the, the robust the robust recovery system, the structure in your life, the the other things. Absolutely, that, yeah. That that you can't you couldn't do it on your own. No, certainly not. No, and I tried. I tried. I, I probably checked myself in. I think I counted at one point to thirteen different rehabs and detoxes. None of hmm. them worked. Um, I tried absolutely everything. Um, and what what really worked was recovery. And 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 recovery is something that I feel like the medical establishment and other um, and and sort of mainstream media continues to be suspicious of because it's based on this, it, 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 it's a spiritual program, right? It, it, it operates according to spiritual principles. Um, it's not a drug, it's not a pill that you can take. It do, it's not um, mechanical or materialist in nature. It involves really a complete transformation um, of our sense of time and of, of our sense of what's valuable in the world. Um, it gives us a distance from our desires. All of these features, a sense of responsibility, a sense of structure in life, all of these, um, uh, and, 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 you know, uh, people in the medical community have been trying for a long time to find a pill or a medical treatment that will do the job of getting people into recovery. Nothing works. There are certainly medications that can help, that can assist with the recovery process, but there's really no substitute for that uh, complete transformation uh, that, that recovery entails. You know, can you, can you go back and tell us what, if if you would, what tipped you into addiction many years ago? Yeah, so for, um, it's kind of an interesting question, and the question of um, I often think about when I when when people ask about why I became addicted, I think of a, a famous story that the Buddha told, where he said, uh, "If a man's house is on fire, do we first try to uh, uh, find out who set the fire, or do we first try to put out the fire?" And the reason I say that is because um, scientifically there's no good answer for why some people become addicts and other people don't. Genetics probably plays a role, and certainly I've got, as uh, someone who's born in Ireland, I do have uh, um, addiction and alcoholism in my heritage. Um, but I think for me that the simplest answer is the first time I tried heroin, that was it. I became an addict that very first time, the first experience hmm was one where all of a sudden I felt every possible care that I might have, every worry completely lifted and existed in a state of absolute euphoria. Um, and at that moment, at that very moment, all the other goals I had in my life, all the other values, spiritual sensations and perceptions, all of that vanished and was replaced by what I call the endless whiteness of the drug. Um, so I, I, you know, and, and that's, that's, this is another paradox of addiction. You don't know who's going to become an addict before they pick it up, right? You know, mm -hmm. afterwards. And so it's, it'd be great to say, well, you know, just people who are going to be prone to addiction should stay away from these drugs and we can legalize the rest of them. But unfortunately we can't make that decision because there's no separating, uh, uh those who, who might, uh, take the drug, be totally fine. I have friends who tried heroin, had no problem with it, did it a few times, walked away from it. Then you have other people like myself who became enslaved to it. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, 
and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Well, you're now an accomplished writer and, and professor at a, at, a, at a top school. Have Over the years, you know, you go through a lot of stress, disappointments of professional life. and I mean, it's, it's inevitable, overwork and everything. Those activities by themselves didn't push you back. You didn't feel, oh, it sure would be nice to have a moment to step out. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Um, no, I definitely felt that. Uh, and um, the the difference with recovery, though, is, you know, uh, it puts, uh, it gives me a choice, basically. I might have the thought, I can have all kinds of thoughts during a day, but the experience of recovery has really given me, you know, I might have a thought why it would be nice to, to relieve the stress with a drug or a drink or whatever. Um, but I don't have to do that. And I, I'm aware of all the consequences that would follow on it. And I remember very vividly one time I was, and I write about this in the book, I, I had been up, you know, the job market, as you know, the academic job market is brutal. My first time on it, I was up for a, a job at an Ivy League school and I, I ended up coming in second. And when um, I got the email saying, you know, thanks, you know, sorry. Uh, um, uh, my girlfriend had also broken up with me and taken the furniture out of the apartment. So I had only an air mattress that was leaking air and I had a cold. So it was one of those moments where I was just like, everything sucks. And I was about clean for about three years at this point. And I, I suddenly had a very strong desire to pick up a drug. But what I did was, and instead I, I, I did a, you know, a practice that I, I developed in recovery, which was meditate. And, and what happened when I, when I meditate is um, it's like all, I, I, I got some distance from the thoughts and eventually they dissolved and I was kind of able to be in the moment. And this is kind of interesting, it's kind of the reverse of pain where you're, in the, you're trapped in the moment in agony, but rather to be in the moment when, in, with, with a sense of peace. And I, I often think of meditation and related spiritual practices as in some ways putting me in touch with what I loved in heroin but in a, hmm. in a positive way. And so I, I feel, you know, as an addict, one of the good things about being an addict is you're not satisfied with halfway measures, right? Um, you want something intense, you want something extreme. Um, and it's all about finding a spiritual means of satisfying that. And so when I, when I, when I was in that space meditating, then all of a sudden the, the problems that I had, you know, about not getting this job or about losing this relationship and so forth, they shrunk down to their manageable size. Um, and I was able to get up and go about my day and I didn't have to pick up a drug. Right. And, and I've had that experience like that thousands of times over the past 20 years. Yeah. Where were you in graduate school again? Johns Hopkins. At Hopkins in, in English? In English. Yep. Who'd you work with? Just curious. Uh, my advisor was Walter Ben Michaels. Um, and Alan Grossman was, uh, I worked with, I also worked with uh, Michael Freed, the art historian. Yeah. It was kind of an amazing group of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, Freed, Freed, to sit and watch Freed break down a painting, it's, it's, you're seeing a master craftsman at, at, at work. Uh, one of the great readers of contemporary art, I I think. Absolutely. that, that we have. So, uh, okay, Let, let's turn to your Washington Post op-ed. This one, why decriminalizing drugs is a bad idea. 
Uh, this came out on April 10th, uh, 2023. Uh, you note the movement to decriminalize drugs is growing. What are the arguments that the advocates offer in favor of doing that? The main arguments they offer are that the war on drugs from their perception is not working. Um, and, you know, they, we still have overdoses. We still have lots of addicts. Uh, the cost of the war on drugs are very high. And then their main argument, really, and that, that's part of it. That's a, a part of their argument. But their, their main yeah. argument is, look, addiction is a disease. We should treat it as a disease and instead of punishing it like a crime. That's their right. strong argument. Right, right. And the war on drugs is, is very expensive, certainly, and they're there. But, but your real problem is you are, you're conceptualizing this in, in the wrong way, and you can see that in what you call a, quote, inconvenient truth. Hey, everyone, treatment is not as successful as people say it is. What are the... What are the rates on on treatment? How 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 effective are are the are the dominant treatments of drug addiction? They're not. I mean, they're not very effective, unfortunately. And and um, you know, so so. And I'll I'll uh, uh, I'll give you some data in a, in a moment. But um, yeah, uh, the the people, all the strong arguments for legalizing drugs or decriminalizing drugs depend on the idea that treatment funneling money into treatment will, uh, uh, will, will solve the addiction problem, which will increase once you uh, decriminalize drugs. In fact, s statistics vary wildly, but uh, somewhere between 60 and 85% of addicts relapse within a year of serious inpatient treatment. Hmm. Um, on, on average, a study found that it takes about eight years of uh, intensive medical treatment before people get recovery. Uh, so just from, just from the, the, the data, you can see that recovery is extremely hard. It's, again, it's, it's, it's really a spiritual transformation. It's really something where you have to get to a point of being able to say, I'm gonna change my entire life. And here's why it's so hard, Mark. When I was an addict, I knew what it was like not to have drugs. The only thing that sucked worse than being on drugs was not being on drugs. I knew that. Hmm. What I couldn't conceptualize was what life would be like in recovery. That required a leap of faith, which is very hard for a fear-wracked addict to make. Um, hmm. So I needed to get to a place, and it happened for me by being arrested, charged with a felony in Chicago 21 years ago. That, for me, was the moment when I said, I just can't do it on my own anymore. Yeah. I've got to try something else. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go, go back for a moment. Uh, what, what you said about just envisioning recovery, you, you say in the piece, um, you're not, okay, treatment can be effective, but as the saying goes, recovery is for people who want it, not for people who need it. How many drug addicts want to stop? I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, it's it's a it's a real question, and it is the question, the major question in recovery, which is, all addicts on some level want to stop, but the desire is often very weak, right? And it's easily defeated. Yeah. It's defeated by the desire for drugs. It's the desire, uh, uh, the desire to keep doing what I'm doing, the desire not to have to change my life. 
to have that really strong desire. And when I, we say a, a desire to stop using, it kind of has to be your main focus in life, right? Like the number one desire is to stop using drugs. To develop that desire, and you need that for recovery to work. And that is just the, the, the fact. You can take a drug called buprenorphine, which relieves cravings uh, 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 for heroin, which I did. But on its own, without that strong desire to quit using, all I did was I drank addictively. I smoked pot addictively, used cocaine. And eventually, mm. I stopped taking the buprenorphine and started taking heroin again. So um, it's, 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 it's hard and it's rare. Uh, uh, I, I actually, I, I'm not sure it's that rare. I think eventually, um, given the process of addiction, many addicts will end up um, developing that desire and uh, uh, many and millions of people do get into recovery. It's just, it takes a lot to get to that point. It's not something where you can just say, okay, addict, we're putting you into rehab, go for it. Now you get out and now you're recovered. It unfortunately does not work that way. Yeah. You mentioned getting arrested. How, how did you get arrested? And describe what you say you felt when you got arrested, not fear, but relief yes yeah yeah totally yeah, but, I was, but, yeah. But give us give us the circumstances of, of the arrest if you would yeah i was in um so i was in the uh west side of chicago which which at that time and 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 perhaps now is is a uh you know a place of a lot of drug selling and gang activity and i would go there to get drugs and i was standing in line to get some and the the drug dealer came by and and, and gave me the drugs and then all of a sudden undercover cops jumped out and I dropped the drugs and they weren't really interested in me. They were interested in the guy who was selling it. So I, I was walking away, but then I looked and I saw that I dropped the drugs. I had no more money, nowhere to get any money. And hmm. so believe it or not, I, I bent down pretending to tie my shoes to pick up the packet of drugs. And the cops immediately said, oh my God, what are you doing? Right. Uh, hmm. And took me away and arrested me, charged me with a, uh, 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 felony possession of heroin. And at that moment, when I got arrested, and when I and I was I was uh, then kicking heroin in the in the jail cell, um, I, I I had this in, really this immense sense of relief, this sense that the impossible battle I've been fighting for years, uh, how to use drugs successfully, that was over now. I, I I intuited in some way that I just couldn't go on with it, and that something was going to change now. I, my family was going to have to find out about it. Um, there would be constant legal consequences. Uh, and, and to be honest, from that moment, my life has basically been easy. I mean, it sounds strange. I've had a lot of, you know, challenges and, and um, you know, uh, uh, recovery was, was, was a challenge and so forth. But nothing compared to the impossible struggle to try to use uh, uh, drugs successfully. D don't addicts who sit in jail undergo excruciating symptoms of withdrawal? Yeah, I mean, it's, yes, but the, um, the funny thing is, is that withdrawal is actually just about as bad as a flu. It's not anything incredibly horrific. Like shingles is much worse than huh. uh, withdrawal, for example. We addicts tend to exaggerate. You can't die from heroin withdrawal. Um, but we addicts tend to exaggerate it because uh, along with the thing that makes withdrawal excruciating is the knowledge I can stop this at any moment with my drug. And so it's that desire and craving that really lends such uh, intensity and agony to it. When I get the flu, I've gotten the flu a couple times since I've been clean. It sucks, it's horrible. 
The symptoms are no worse than heroin withdrawal, but it's nothing as like as agonizing because it's missing that mental component. Yeah. But you get you get through it. It's a few days. Um, and if I'm in jail or if I'm in a, a, a rehab facility, uh, it's really not too bad. The problem is once I get through the withdrawal, how do I stop from picking up the drug again? That's the real problem. That's the key to addiction. You, you say that what, what got you is, quote, nothing but the law. I believe that my arrest saved my life. Through a court-mandated treatment program, I began my road to recovery. And this ultimately is, is your, the rationale for your, your point in the headline, decriminalizing bad idea. Now, how did people respond to this op-ed? Yeah, it was. It got a, it got, got you know the thousands of comments. It was, and, and I got hundreds of emails. Very negative. The, the main response was was extremely negative, and people were basically saying, um, it was kind of interesting. The main thing they said was, well, this is just anecdotal. This is just your experience. Um, that doesn't mean anything. We still need to leg, uh, decriminalize drugs. Um, you know, uh, we need to not be putting people in jail. You know, we're gonna, uh, we've got this terrible racial disparity in jail that this is, uh, uh, that, that uh, criminalizing drugs is causing. They were so committed to the idea of decriminalization that they really re reacted extremely violently that anyone could, could suggest, especially someone who's a former addict, that it might not be such a good idea. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the interesting things is that every single argument they, put forward is actually wrong. I have plenty of evidence. It wasn't in, it, all the evidence wasn't in the piece because the piece wasn't really about that. It was about my own experience. But if, if you want objective evidence for why decriminaliz decriminalization uh, fails, all you have to do is to compare the experience of Portugal with the experience of Oregon, which in 2020 uh, legal decriminalized drugs. And this really gets to the heart of the, of the uh, sort of insane thinking uh, among the decriminalization movement. What Portugal did when it decriminalized drugs in the early 2000s is it understood, they understood that you have to give serious consequences to addicts. So the medical community, if you get arrested with the drug possession, they don't just let you go with or slap a small fine on you. You have to go before a board that evaluates you whether you're an addict, what kind of problem you have. And then they impose serious consequences, limiting your mobility, uh, directing you, you're not able to go to certain places could affect you, your ability to hold a job, you get serious consequences. And because of that, and there's all kinds of debates about, about how well it has succeeded in Portugal, but because of that, it, it seems to have succeeded fairly well. Now, what they did in Oregon in 2020 is they just did the decriminalization piece. They didn't have the consequences piece. And so what you found is what's predictable is overdoses went up by 30%. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, 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 you know, none of the, uh, uh, they, they, the people had this hope that all these people uh, would be going into recovery instead of um, instead of the prison system. Less than one percent of the people that went through their um, uh, system to funnel them into recovery actually went into recovery. So huh. it's been a disaster. Um, and and to me, it's very predictable uh, based on a very simple I, uh, uh, principle, which is addicts need consequences are a great gift to addicts. Some kind of consequence is what is required, in my case and many others, to turn us from the path of addiction into recovery. Another thing to say is less than 4% of people in prison are there for drug possession, for nonviolent drug possession. Not that many people are there. I didn't go to prison. I was in jail for a few days. 
I went through a drug court program with involving probation and myself and millions of others, we never go to prison. So the idea that we're going to solve our prison problem, which is primarily a problem caused by violence through decriminalization is just completely false. So it's more a, a dogma. This decriminalization is, is more about a kind of ideology or dogma than it is about anything rooted in either objective evidence or in the experience of addicts, in my view. The book reissued now, a 10-year reissue, is White Out. The op-ed in the Post was called Why Decriminalizing Drugs is a Bad Idea. Professor Kloon, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.